My guest this week started working in retail when he was 15. 15! At a young age, he already knew what he wanted to do. The end goal? Become a buyer. And he was going to make it happen. Even if it meant calling a company every day for three weeks for an internship. Before you know it, he's working at a prestigious London retailer and eventually buying for a global menswear site. So what's next? He joins one of the largest retailers on earth and is just getting started. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Sam Lobin, VP of Fashion for Nordstrom. Sam and I discuss his career in retail, the true importance of passion, and how he's helping evolve Nordstrom through the curated new concept projects and more. Sam Lobin, you're on the pod. So... I know it kind of, I blitzed you right there. We just started, but we were already going when we were talking about breakfast. Okay, hot mic, hot mic. So, <laughs> mic's always hot, uh, and you're good. So, before, before we get started, um, you are, are kind of like the superhero of retail and buying, and like you have this like legendary, you know, pedigree, and, and the fact that you... <laughs> So it's funny because we, we bumped into each other earlier. You had said that, you know, you um, had met Toby when you were 19. But I heard that you started working in retail when you were 15. 15 and three quarters, to be exact. Good God. So in the UK, uh, you can start working. Basically, you get your national insurance number, which is like your social security number, mm-hmm. at 15 and nine months. So that's when you can officially start working so that you can pay tax, basically. Right. You can do it like a paper run before that but um you can't do you can only do cash and hand jobs which of course are not above board um so yeah 15 and three quarters i started working on the shop floor of a shop called david copperfield which is in st albans no uh, relation to the magician no relation to the magician uh, okay. a chap called michael franklin started it um i mean i guess it must be coming on to like it's 45th year yeah uh so it's like an old school British um, men's outfitter, although it's always moved with the times. So right. it's not like a, a, a classic uh, clothier or anything like that. Uh, and St. Albans is uh, 20 miles north of central London. It's a 19-minute train journey to King's Cross. Okay. Um, and is that where you grew up? That is where I grew up. Um, I was kind of... In, in, in towns around there, there's a town called Hatfield, which I sort of grew up for mm-hmm. the first 10, 11 years, and then I moved to St. Albans. Um, so really like secondary school... All of my mates are from St. Albans. That's where we, we grew up doing our thing. Um, but yeah, so I got, I remember walking into to Copperfield, uh, I think probably like with my mum, like I'd, I'd printed off CVs, resumes, which of course had nothing on it, really. It right. Just like, hi, I'm Sam, basically Experience. on a piece of paper. Um, <laughs> Hungry to work. Yeah. <laughs> I really like clothes. Um, and uh, I remember giving one to um, Deborah Nash, who was the madress at the time. Um, and I went in for an interview, which again, you know, I was fifteen and three quarters. I can't, I can't exactly imagine, remember what was asked in that interview, but it can't have been anything too um, complicated. Um, but really, they were just trying to gauge how much you were into product and clothes. And I really got that job to get discount. So, oh, yeah. um, of course, I mean, that that's, I think like anyone who starts in retail at that age, it's like, well, if I'm in here, I can get the stuff I want first and cheaper. Yeah. And 
like my granddad's a greengrocer. My dad has sort of bought and sold all sorts of things. He had bonsai stalls and he had an art gallery and a number of them for a while. And I'd actually done like Sundays for him in a poster shop that he had. Um, wait, wait, wait. Let's, I, let's jump to your dad real, real quick. Yeah. What was your dad doing? Uh, well, he's kind of done a lot of stuff over the years. He's like a, um, like a small scale entrepreneur, although, you know, he's kind of had varying degrees in success of that. I only say small scale because, um, you know, he likes to work out new things to do so I, at the moment he has a wine shop nice um, natural wines probably or something uh i don't know actually do you know I've, I've i don't think i've ever been to the wine shop it's like a relatively i've been here for two and a half years and when right. i go back i sort of like hang out at my parents house um, <laughs> and he often has something new going on so he's like bought and sold second-hand cars and he um he had i think at one point he had four art galleries maybe five including poster shops yeah that's um, not small scale entrepreneur yeah and then like he had a <laughs> jean store years and years ago and he's done all sorts of and stuff. Were, were you alive during this time yeah 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 i very young but um i definitely remember him having a bonsai stall because i used to go and you know look at the little mini trees um <laughs> so when i was about 12 or 13 okay he like he grew up working in my dad's in my granddad's greengrocers, right? So and it, can you explain what a greengrocer is in like American lingo? Oh, sorry, uh, greengrocers is a fresh fruit and veg shop. Yeah, so they sell apples and potatoes and onions and it's like beetroots. Yeah, it would be like a high end grocery store of like fresh stuff. Uh, well, here if you were here in New York, yeah, theirs probably wouldn't have been described as high end. It was way more. <laughs> sort of working class and natural than that gotcha. but um but yes okay. <laughs> <laughs> essentially um things like uh supermarkets killed off greengrocers in the yeah. uk um so uh when i was about 12 or 13 i forget he kind of put me to work on sundays in his poster shop serving customers so i, I was around like retail and serving customers and um and that whole thing from a very early age so what, what did he tell you when you had to go do it like were there other things you wanted to do and he kind of like brought you in and said like you have to do this or were you excited to be a part of it um i think i was excited to be a part of it um mm. i always liked the idea of he he was always working so i guess it was a sort of also a way to be around right um be around him yeah i guess so yeah. um so we when i was yeah 15 and three quarters um and i'd been working in shops before that okay um which sounds a bit weird. So you it? did have experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess I did. Um, you know, I, I've like been into clothes almost forever. There's, um, when I was like 10, okay. um, I, a friend of mine, a guy called Ollie Mills, um, was like going to a disco somewhere in Hatfield, the town I'm from. And uh, I remember like, I, you know, as a kid, I grew up wearing like tracksuits like i guess most sort yeah. of pre 10 year old kids uh, and i remember my dad like i remember ollie borrowing one of his older brother's shirts and my dad being like okay right well we need to get you a, a proper shirt and as i remember it we went to um uh tk max which is the yep. european franchise of tj max yep um and bought a ben sherman shirt and that was like my first sort of foray into, ben into clothes. Sherman. yeah nice. yeah yeah it's a real claim to fame um and then uh so fast forward anyway, and mm -hmm. um, started working at Copperfield. Um, and they used to do this scheme, which they may well still do. It's uh, a friend of mine, Harry, now owns the business. Um, and like my best friend since I was 10, Jack, I boil, runs the store with Harry. Um, 
where you'd get like half off the clothes and you could do like a layaway scheme, which basically meant we'll dot money from your wages and you oh, can okay. pay for stuff over, over weeks. Right. So I worked in that store for three years. I mean, I barely remember actually taking any money off of it because I think I just spent it all on Stone Island. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you're rocking some Stony right now. Mm, I guess I've, yeah, I have a long-standing love affair with, uh, with Stone Island. Well, well, we'll get more to that, but it's good yeah. because it shows that you, you have taste and you also know what fits you and know what you like. Yeah. Um, and for me, that... Like that Saturday, so I used to do Saturdays, I used to do a few Sundays, and then as soon as I'd have time off school, I would just work every day in mm-hmm. his shop, David Copperfield. Um, and I guess it really taught me the basis of like serving a customer and understanding what a customer wants out of clothes. Like my thing with clothes has always been, um, I'm like really into the whole idea of British subcultures. Uh, so when I was like 16, 17, I was just dressing like a, a, a mod the whole time. I remember... Um, going up to Carnaby Street as like a 17 year old and buying a three button um, like shark skin tonic wool mohair grey suit from Shelley's uh, sorry Sherry's not Shelley's it's just an old shoe store uh, Sherry's like she was on one of the side streets of Carnaby Street um, did you have like the pointy mod shoes too I had some two-tone pointy mod shoes. Nice. Know, I did. Um, swear or whatever that British brand was at that time, I think maybe. Yeah, I had some swears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think swears still going. Um, so um, I was always like obsessed with the whole um, British subculture thing. So I've always liked just the idea of how different guys wear clothes. Mm. Like really, I don't have any like subjective opinion on an individual style it's more just as long as you're into what you're into um which is kind of like a natural forerunner to go into like the buying world the retail world menswear in general yeah because you know different guys use clothes in different ways and they're into it in a lot of different ways be it if you're into like the classic luxury sportswear thing or the stone island thing or um you know you always wear suits um or the whole sort of like modern high designer fashion gucci dior etc etc each of those is just a different guy sort of expressing their own vibe on, on product in a different way. Um, and I think I got a lot of that understanding, both from like my own personal sort of thing of looking up into British subcultures, but then also being on a shop floor um, and interacting mm-hmm. with lots of different customers and seeing what lots of different customers wanted out of, out of clothes and product. There's, there's something really like distinct I want, I want to call out from that because I think a lot of people when they work at retail or start in retail or trying to understand it, they often assume that like I got there because of me and my my style, my look. So say I wear, I don't know, a bunch of head to toe Ralph Lauren, uh, and I, you know, work at some cool shop. And a guy comes in, most of the the at least from my experience from I mean, I worked at L V, I worked at Banana Republic, I worked at all these different levels of of shops. And you would have uh basically anyone that came in, it was your job to make them look like you. And it sounds like what you were learning about is when these people came in, you were learning about them and then trying to help them look more like who they wanted to be themselves versus cloning you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like for me, it's, um, you know, I only ever wear black. Um, <laughs> it's a thing. Like ever since I was, I think, 18, maybe a little bit younger, I've only ever worn black. Um, that's, that's, that's commitment, man. Yeah, there was one brief three-month period when I was about 22 when uh, you mentioned Toby, but he was one of the people um kept saying why don't you wear color why don't you try you know <laughs> i tried it for like three months and you know oh, three months that's a, decided that's it wasn't for me i was in like um a, yeah like supreme chinos and 
Okay. Uh, our legacy Oxford chambray shirt and stuff. All right. There's photographic evidence somewhere, but um, I did away with that very quickly. But it wasn't wasn't your vibe. It wasn't my vibe at all. No. So you talked about how you you really learned more of this stuff being on a retail floor, and then you know how this kind of set you up for buying. Did you immediately? I mean, how many years were you at Copperfield? So I worked at Copperfield until I was 18, and then okay. I started on the shop floor of Selfridges. And that's where you meet Mr. Mr. Toby. Uh, so yeah, Toby was around that time. I mean, what actually happened was um, I was finishing up uh, school, secondary school, high school, mm-hmm. um, and wondering what to do. Um, and the manageress, Deb Nash, of Copperfield had seen an... Um, an advertisement in a paper for something called the Fashion Retail Academy, um, hmm. which still exists today. It's a much bigger affair than it was back then. Um, it's part, I don't know the actual technical setup, but it, initially it was um, very linked with Arcadia and Philip Green. He was oh, okay. like, uh, a big, maybe instigator of it, it's probably the right word. Um, I think it was a joint thing between him and the government, the like the colleges uh, mm-hmm. fund within the government. Um, and uh, I did the pilot year of that, which was in a back room of um, London College of Fashion. And it was like 20 Whoa. kids, you know, in a back room, sort of doing a fashion management course. Um, and really, if I'm honest, what well, it was a year's course. Um, so it was pre mm-hmm. sort of going to university. And um, I remember I sort of turned up on the first day and uh, the lady that was running um, this new course I think on the first day she mentioned that she used to work at Selfridges. Um, I think I went up to her that day and said, do you know anyone at Selfridges? <laughs> um, Hustle. And she gave me, um, and I'd applied a few times online, um, but they probably thought this is some 18-year-old kid and they never got back to me. Sure. Um, and uh, she gave me the address for a lady called Sue West, um, who was the director of operations, um, who I should add here. I found out just yesterday that she passed away very recently. So oh. sort of condolences to yeah. her family on that. Um, I never knew her very well, but you know, she's actually quite an important part of my sure. retail story. And I, like I said, I only found that out yesterday. Um, so I sent um, Sue West a, a handwritten letter saying, hi, mm. I'm Sam. I'd love to work on your shop floor. And like within days, I got a call from HR saying, can you come in for an interview? Um, and then subsequently got a job. Um, Who told you to send the handwritten letter, by the way? Uh, I like Was that just instinct? You just figured? Yeah. yeah? Nice. Okay. Yeah. Um, it felt like the appropriate thing to do. I I, well, it is. I think it's very appropriate, but I don't think people... Um, the reason why I, I mention that is I think a lot of people think, I'll send them an email mm. or I'll do this. Like, I mean, this was a while ago. But still. But yes, it's, email did definitely exist at that yeah, time. Yeah, it is very, very personal to send someone something mm. that's written by hand. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think especially when you're sort of like petitioning. Like, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, the, uh, so you, you get the interview. I get the interview and I get the job. And then on my, on my induction or orienteering, uh, like orientation or orientation whatever. yeah yeah thanks orienteering is where you walk around the woods with a map okay. <laughs> um so in my orientation we call it induction in the uk gotcha um uh that might come up a few times sort of british to american please help me no no you're good um, i've only been here two and a half years i'm still learning <laughs> <laughs> um on my uh orientation um i met 
the guy called John Lawler, who was the um, the merchandiser or sort of buy planner, so works directly with the buy team mm-hmm. on building sort of the financial plan um, of menswear. Um, and I said, oh, do you do work experience? And he said, no, we don't really do stuff like that. And I called him every day for three weeks. At so nine work and... experience would be like an internship? Yeah, although work experience is like much more short term. It's more like, can I turn up for a couple of weeks in between school holidays and help you do admin? Oh, okay. Um, and he said, no, we don't really do stuff like that at the time. Um, and I called him every day for three weeks at nine and five thirty. And on the third Friday at five thirty, wow, he said, um, I mean, I guess he said it in uh, stronger terms than I'm about to use, but he said, you know, stop calling me. What are you doing next week? And it happened to be Easter holidays from school. So I said, I'm not doing anything. Um, he said, okay, we'll come to the office and you can help do admin. So I did, um, I, like I checked orders and PO confirmations for two weeks, um, and after that they gave me a job. Wow! So, yeah, I started in the buying office of Selfridges when I was nineteen, which I think is the youngest. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if there's 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 younger necessarily, but um, put it this way: most people go into that role having gone to college. So right. I I kind of skipped that phase, um, and I was I had a place. Um, to go to London College of Fashion to do their fashion management uh, degree um, and was kind of weighing up, do I do the degree thing and, and, and go to college or do I um, go straight into this job? Which in real terms was, would have been the job that I would have got. Right. So anyway. let's, I just wanted to sidebar on that because I think that's a question that I get asked and also stuff I've dealt with myself a ton in which, okay, do I pursue higher education um, when in most cases, specifically, let's just say in the, in fashion and merchandising and stuff, if one, you already have the job, does it make sense to just double down on that? Because for every year of additional experience you have in that, that's technically more valuable in, in the workplace than having the degree, or do you have the degree? Because I think you and I both, you know, you had said that you, you skipped out on school, right? Uh, yeah, on, on college. I didn't go to college. Yeah. I mean, I finished like yeah, high yeah. school and stuff. But, um... And that's the same with me. I, I did all that and I came to New York because I was trying to you know, do my thing. The difference between you and I, though, is you had a very promising career that you went and walked into <laughs> and I sit before you today, a broken man. But <laughs> I think you're doing all right. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But um, I, that is something that a lot of people are trying to figure out. Like, oh, and specifically in America, a lot of people think I want to change careers I bet I have to go to, to school and get all these other degrees. And it sounds like you just had passion and you kept relentlessly trying to do the work. I think, um, I think there's so many variables that I don't think there's ever a single answer to that. You're I probably think, right. You know, it kind of depends on the person in front of you. Like, is it a 19-year-old kid that doesn't know what they want to do? Yeah. Then, you know, having some kind of degree that's transferable probably isn't a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have uh, a 19 year old kid who's super impassioned and knows exactly what they want to do? Like, I, you know, I, I went to my first trade show with Michael Franklin, the old owner of David Copperfield, when I was 16. Jeez. Um, and he kind of took me along to a, a trade show that used to exist in the UK called um, To Be Confirmed. And, uh, like, for me, that was like, this is really what I wanted to do. It was like buying was this kind of center point between the creative elements of our industry because you know i'm product obsessed Mm -hmm. but also it gives you the like the retail benchmark of um 
you know, there's very sort of clear wins in the buying world because everything's um, quantifiable because it's based on, you know, essentially sales and margin. Right. Um, so for me, it was like the be all and end all and the only thing I ever wanted to do. But I think I was very, very, very fortunate in understanding that and just having that. Well, you had a vision. talent. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I had a, um, a slightly obsessive um, view on just this is the only thing that I wanted to to yeah. do and, and, and pursue um i would say the 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 like the thing with a degree is it's transferable regardless of how specialized the field is because Very true the um like the nature of going through the process of getting a degree like that skill set of being completely connected committed and dedicated to all of the research and work that goes into you know them producing the degree and all the work mm-hmm. that you have to get to get the degree um that in itself is transferable to kind of any job set. Sure. Um, so I think there's always, there's never a negative. Um, I agree, yeah. The thing that I'd say is it isn't also always a requirement, um, especially in something like retail, right? where so much of it can be vocational. Uh, I guess I'm always going to say that because, yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> My only training story. is vocational. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, there's no hard and tested rule. I think um, each their own and each to the individual. And you can go out and, and, and carve a path. Yeah. Um, if you're dedicated to it and you're kind of interested in the hard work. So you're 19, you're at Selfridges, you got the job, you're in the buying office. And then this is where, I, I you know, you had met Toby Bateman. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, originally um, a lady called Anita Barr was the buying manager that I worked Mm -hmm. under and then I think Anita moved to women's and there was a bit of a reshuffle Um, and then Toby became my buying manager Um, so whilst we worked together from I mean we've actually known each other since I was 18 because I did work experience when I was 18 Um, jeez and then we probably worked together since I was 20 Um, so Selfridges was like I guess for me the ultimate learning ground um at a department store because there was just so much going on um in terms of uh we do lots of events and we do lots of installations on the shop floor and there were lots of brand launches going on all the time and at the time um men's was run by a, a guy called David Walker Smith um and he was really into the high low proposition you know he used to talk a lot about from top man to long van um which incidentally kind of it's funny because uh it coincides neatly with nordstrom where i am now Mm because you know the nordstrom proposition is really about high low and um i kind of well i guess we'll get to this but when i first met pete nordstrom i kind of mentioned something like that to him and he laughed he said oh we saved from vans from valentino um (laughs) so um you know and i guess for me like the way that Selfridges really drive that business. Um, there was a huge learning of taking, I guess, all the stuff I was talking about before. It's like really the connection of retail and buying and driving your business forwards and all the different ways that you can do that through marketing events, products, brand mix, right. uh, space on the floor, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I was there for five or six years. Right. And then you came over with Toby to Mr. Porter. Yeah, there was a little gap um, okay. of about sort of nine months. I joined, uh, I joined Mr. Porter in June 2011. Uh, so that business launched in February 2011. Yeah. Uh, so you were, you were one of the earlier people at Mr. Porter. Yeah, I think at the time there may have been sort of 30 people or something. Okay. Um, I'd heard you're in the, the, the Elite Eight. 
which uh, I don't even I don't even know who those people are, but I heard that at the Mr. P office. So. Um, the I think that's more reference to like back then there was a really tight knit crew of people, um, and it was across all the different functions gotcha. um, that were really all making or um, discussing and making decisions together. Mm. You know, I definitely never worked anywhere. Um, that kind of did everything by committee, um, which I think has a negative connotation, but really I say that with all positivity because a lot of the stuff that we managed to get done and mm-hmm. the reason that everything felt so united with Mr. Porter as a proposition was the fact that you know we were thinking of everything from product proposition, editorial, um, marketing, brand positioning, really how we wanted to set the stall out of what Mr. Porter would subsequently become. Um, there was a group of sort of seven or eight people that were talking about that okay, kind of all the time. So I guess that's probably a reference to, yeah. to that more than anything. I thought there was a bunch of comic book superheroes. <laughs> I was like, okay, right. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd be the ginger one. <laughs> <laughs> so you're at Mr. Porter, and this is, I think, where um, I first interacted with you in terms of like what you were doing because, you know, and I've said this on, you know, talked with Jeremy and talked with Toby on how... Um, game changing i think mr porter was not just for um for other brands that were learning how to sell online but for con- you know consumers and men who were learning that they could buy online and you know you guys just kind of somewhat unstoppable at that at that point like it was you know amazing well you know thank you for that and uh it was a lot of fun um you know, there was a lot of um, hustle in terms of convincing people to sell online and also convincing them of what, you know, we could do that was different. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the most interesting thing for me and like one of the biggest reasons of joining Porter was, you know, when it launched, it was very specific in its in its outlook. Right. Um you know, there was a lot of, um, and there, there still is today. None of this has, has gone away necessarily. It's just broadened in terms of reach. But, um, you know, everything was about um, this sort of very gentlemanly, um, not necessarily, we never fixed it on a, a specific location, although I think internationally it's seen as very British. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely internally, we never thought of it like that. It was more this sort of global sense of, of style. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and a lot around the uh, specialists uh, within the field, i.e. like Incatex make the best trouser or... You know, Lord Piano makes the best cashmere or right. um, Lock and Co hats and all that kind of stuff or made with green shoes. And, um, you know, Toby was on your podcast talking about that element. Yeah. For me, it was also about how could we push the envelope of what Mr. Porter could mean, but stay within the Mr. Porter world. Um, so how could we grow? How could we really be um, the destination for the best men's wear in the world? Mm-hmm. Um regardless of your style. So if just you were into product, you could come to Mr. Porter and buy it, which I guess goes back to that thing that I was into um, always, you know, as a kid, but still am. It's kind of, it's less about, um, you know, telling someone how to dress and more just going, hey, you want the best stuff. Here you go. So like an example of that would be back in October 2011 when we took our first trip to Japan. Um, and I remember kind of meet the the neighborhood guys um, with nice. beams. Um, you know, at the time we had things like um, Givenchy on the site and we had um, what was then sort of just YSL but became Saint Laurent yeah. on the site. Um, 
And I remember talking to them and them firstly being very hesitant over a website only business. Um, yeah. And sort of saying, well, you know, this is how we want to position the brand if you're willing to come along with us on this ride. But, you know, where their international exposure had been kind of really just streetwear stores um, up until that point, you know, we wanted to show it alongside kind of European designer wear. Mm. Um, so mixed with because the dark sort of rock and roll motorcycle vibe of neighbourhood um, especially back then um, kind of we all thought would work really well alongside you know sort of dark Ricardo Tisci Givenchy or right, right. Um, that kind of vibe and they were really intrigued by this this mix of Japanese streetwear and European designer um, which I guess a couple of people had sort of done to one degree or another, what John Skelton at the time was doing at LNCC. Um, but it was in a very different way. Um, well, the scale was also significantly smaller. Yeah, and in a, in a much more sort of yeah. niche way. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by P. Johnson. Over the years, I've been lucky to try a handful of tailors and custom clothiers, but I've always wrestled with something I would wear every day. You know me, my style is casual, easy, not too stuffy. I've been wearing P. Johnson and couldn't be happier. P. Johnson offers a unique made-to-measure approach with a focus on lightness, simplicity, and wearability. Although specialist made-to-measure tailors, they've since applied this knowledge to almost all items. Casual trousers, sports shirts, shirt jackets, utility vests, even drawstring trousers. For real, I have some corduroy drawstring trousers, they are sick. All of it's made-to-measure and fully customizable. Translation, they make clothing you actually want to wear and that fits into your busy lifestyle, not just something for a business meeting or a special occasion. I bought a navy sport coat that was custom made for me from their Italian workshop and it fits my square shoulders and weird posture perfectly. Visit PJT.com to learn more or drop by one of their showrooms in New York, London, or Australia. That's P. Johnson at PJT.com. Tell me you're a friend of the pod and they'll take care of you. I mean, that's, it's interesting because, uh, from other people that I've talked to and, and from other careers I've had where I've worked with uh, Japanese folks, the, the Japanese like, clothing industry is somewhat very, very, very closed. And it's also, I feel like almost everyone has the same formula on what they want to do on their margins, and they're just kind of fine with that. Like, I, it, it, it always felt from all my interactions with them that, so, I guess... I don't I want to use a good terminology but like strong risk taking and like maybe going outside of the box that they see themselves in was not really something that was welcomed. I think it's twofold there's probably a cultural element yeah from the well, Japanese in that. Sure. Um but also you can build a very successful and pretty robust business just selling domestically. Yeah. In the US, <laughs> right the market's big enough. Yeah. So to one degree or another you don't actually have to go international so you couple that with you know some of the cultural elements of of um the japanese um and you get this kind of insular idea so yeah. you're actually broaching them and saying hey there's a massive market out there that would love to see your stuff um and of course you know we were by no means the first mm -hmm. um to export japanese product to a western market but i think we did it in a sort of different way and to your point really it's like the scale and the niche thing i think what we were trying to do was show amazing product to guys that we thought would really be into it but maybe weren't sort of the sneakerhead streetwear head sort of super into the japanese thing like you know probably didn't shop at hideout 
Michael right. Kaufman's old story. Right, yeah, yeah, I know how to. Um, so we were trying to, because for us, we looked at all of this product, like be it Neighborhood or VisVim or Remy Relief, um, mm-hmm. and just saw that, hey, this is like just really good product that I think a lot more guys would be into if we could show it to them in the right way. Mm. Um, I, I still remember the cab ride. Either we were going to VisVim and we kind of knew that those guys were going to say yes to selling to us, or we were leaving the appointment and they had just said yes to us. Um, but I still remember the sort of the excitement around that cab ride of being in the back of a cab in Paris and realizing that Visvin was going to come off and we were going to get it online for Mr. Porter. It was still kind of like one of the big, um, like for me, it was, it's probably that Prada and engineer garments were like the big three that we landed that, you know, shout out Angelo, shout out Angelo. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, shout out Mrs. Prada and Mr. Patelli as well, but yeah, uh, also true. <laughs> shout out Angelo. <laughs> um, and so I, it feels like a lot of these things started to equip you for where you are now. And I want to jump to that. So you have, uh, it's not an unusual title, but it's, it, it almost feels like something was totally created just for you because of this like Swiss army knife of skill set that you, you got. Can we, can you tell me how you first met Pete Nordstrom? So um, Jeffrey Kalinsky of Jeffrey's, um, yeah. He introduced Pete and I. Well, actually, he got in touch for me to go and see Jeffrey. Um, oh. And after, uh, like, as I remember, after about 10 minutes, he said, uh, you should really meet Pete Nordstrom. Um, and I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll meet Pete Nordstrom. Um, and then he introduced us over email and, and sort of Pete sent me a note and said, oh, can we go for breakfast? Of course, I replied very quickly saying, yes, I would love to. Yeah. Um, and we went for like you know 8 30 breakfast somewhere like around midtown right very nondescript um spot and had a chat for like 45 minutes to an hour um he's a very very nice man um you know very um humble and quite inspiring actually um just in his kind of leadership style um you know he's co-president of nordstrom so obviously knows what he's doing Mm -hmm. um and then we kind of kept in touch for a couple of months um, until he asked me to fly out to um, Seattle right. to meet the um, HQ. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to meet the executive team. Um, so my wife and I went out there and sort of got a feel of, of, of Seattle and, and, um, and, and met a number of different people over uh, the two days. Um, and then after that trip, he kind of said, I think we left that trip that he said, well, send me a note and let me know how you think you could add worth to the business. So I, said, so I sent him an email saying, I think this is what I could do. And he kind of sent me a reply and said, yeah, okay, well, you know, I, I, I sort of agree with this and maybe I think differently about this and here's some additional stuff. And that was my job spec. Wow. So that kind of email exchange. Um, so my original title was uh, Vice President Men's Designer and New Concepts. Um, okay. And now it's it's changed a little bit because I look after a little bit more. But now it's vice president of men's fashion. Um, That's dope. Thanks. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, <laughs> and uh, the the new concepts piece, I guess, is like the thing that everyone gravitates towards because of right. its vagueness, and everyone says, you know, kind of, what does it mean? Um, I guess that kind of was by design, mm-hmm. um, really, to um, allow us to work on sort of 
all manner of different things um, that could really just push forwards the the conversation of what Nordstrom men's is. Um, so it encompasses elements of kind of marketing, in-store um, experience, um, our digital experience, mm. uh, how we interact with the different service propositions at Nordstrom, and then, of course, uh, product um, right. and the brands that we're working with. And um, So it's always going to be a mixture of brands that we currently work with, but we want to tell more animated product stories or perhaps brands that we haven't worked with before and this is a like a platform to communicate better um the thing that i'm most conscious of with it is um it being a brand and product um platform to tell stories we just want to tell meaningful uh stories about interesting stuff that's going on in men's in in what way i mean i, I believe you but i like what the um so the first sort of big rendition of of what that's coming to how how that's coming to life rather is um the concept series where we put together um installations in a number of our stores the first one we did was uh concept 001 we're numbering all the concepts um which was uh we brought together 20 of the best performance outdoor wet weather brands under the banner of out cold mm-hmm. um and we did an installation in new york an installation in seattle and and then it had an online experience mm-hmm. so brands involved with it with that were people like um arcteryx both outdoor and, and valence uh we had cuse ski wear we had aztec mountain on there we had snow peak um, oh, yeah. kind of across the full remit we it's had a very wide breadth of uh yeah, and then we yeah. also had footwear, um, and like we had Cotapaxi and had their bags and stuff, and uh, we also had Macintosh coats. But then we had Salomon's Advance line, and we did some special stuff with DMA, and we had Blundstone right. on there. Um, and really, that was taking. You know, it launched in January. The weather's awful in January, um, <laughs> so it was about taking the idea of kind of a need in menswear, mm-hmm. as in you know guys are out looking for inclement weather product because the weather's horrible outside um and how do we bring that to life in a different way and show a more interesting product assortment but also a more immersive experience um so with our in-store team um and um the uh, creative director uh, who works on this project guy called strath um we got a like a snow and rock scene and digitally printed that over the fixturing and then the snow and rock scene um pixelated into a concrete rain scene so we oh, were wow. trying to mirror you know the in-store experience to the product assortment and the overall concept of what we were trying to do um and then last wednesday we launched um concept 002 which is a project that we've done with um dior celebrating the spring 19 uh kim jones um cause commissioned uh product yeah which is pretty incredible and I mean, you can correct me on this, but like, I don't know if Dior was in Nordstrom before, were yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. we launched for, uh, I think I'm right in saying for Fall 8, actually no, that's a lie. We launched um, Dior with the opening of the men's store. Right. Um, so last April. Yeah. Um, so Dior have a, a, a space upstairs in the designer section. Um, and then, but for spring 19, it's new to a number of other doors. Uh, so it's in Seattle and Topanga and South Coast Plaza and Aventura, as well as New York. Um, but it's a relatively new relationship in men's. And so I, I, you can be as detail-oriented as you want about this or not, but like, how does, how does that happen? Because for the listeners and stuff, like Dior is such a prestigious brand, and Nordstrom is almost like, when I think NBA terms, like, 
there's been a lot of rebuild that's happening. Like it's gone from the nicest store in the mall to now becoming just one of the nicest stores, period. And a store that is more engaged with their customers, a store that is more uh, aware of who their buyers are and are able, you know, like when I was talking about that little return drop-off thing that I saw, like that's genius. Like why, why is that, like why isn't that in more places? And so it's like, I feel like Nordstrom has a very strong understanding of that. But the, the collision of the, the extremely high prestigiousness of Dior and Nordstrom is so, is so new. Like, you know, how, how do you make something like that happen? Um, I guess there's a lot that goes into that yeah, answer. Yeah. Um, one of the things, so we had a pre-existing business in, in women's um, okay. with Dior. So there is sort of precedence of, of, of doing stuff together. Um, but that in itself, I don't think is always just enough. And I think one of the things that's not talked about enough, especially in this industry, is the, um, is the relationships and sort of sense of partnership mm. that goes into it. Um, because that's one of the things, that's one of the things that drew me both to, if I'm honest, Pete Nordstrom, but also right. to the Nordstrom business in general. It's all I'd ever heard from the industry was how great they were to work with. And by no means in a pushover way, in a, just a very fair partnership driven um, idea. And, and to go back, you know, when we were, when I first started at Mr. Porter and we were talking about like our positioning in the market, like partnerships of brands was really like such a super important part of what we wanted to do. We really wanted to be the preferred partner um, and cultivate relationships. So it wasn't just a transactional, you know, we buy stuff from you and we sell it and we do whatever we want with it. And, and that's that. Mm. Um, it was really about building like a long-term business partnership where we could both, uh, both the brand and the retailer could evolve and, and, and cultivate um, this uh, long-term relationship. Um, and that's something that really drew me to Nordstrom because, you know, I think the thing that, I think from a customer perspective, what they're known for is customer service. And I think from an industry perspective, what they're known for is that, is, is building partnerships. Right. Um, so I think there's this healthy sense of, hey, do you know what? These guys are really sort of good to work with um, and they know how to run their business and they're really, really good retailers. Um, so I think that's that bit was already there. The, the then couple with the, the pre-existing customer service and then also how innovative the business is mm -hmm. in terms of customer service. Things like, um, you know, Nordstrom Local in LA um, or 24-hour, um, like, uh, pick-up and drop-off. What's Nordstrom stores. Local? Uh, Nordstrom Local is, um, you know, Nordstrom's known for its big-scale, um, sort of big-footprint department stores. Right. Um, in the LA market, we have three small service-driven spaces that don't technically have any products in them. So there's three, um, they're all about, 3,000 square foot. I think I'm right in saying that. Okay. Um, and you can have orders sent there. You can go and pick them up. You can drop off returns. There's tailors on site. So you can have alterations done there live. Um, so really, it's a, a service hub where you can get lots of kind of additional um, services. And you can interact with the store in, on your own terms. Um, Interesting. So that launched, um, to be honest, I think it launched like a week before I actually met Pete. Or maybe like a day before, because I remember talking to him about it. Um, so that was, uh, I guess, almost 18 months ago that launched yeah. now. Um, so even that in itself is a very sort of innovative idea for a, a big department store. Um, you then, like, I kind of love this fact, but Nordstrom is the biggest employer of tailors in North America. Really? Yeah, so it's like 3,500 tailors. That's books. great. Um, <laughs> 
So you have this whole sort of emphasis on um, on really what the customer wants and how the customer wants to interact with the business. Right. Um, you can you know, buy online, pick up in store. You can reserve online, pick up in store. All those kind of things. Um, so you couple the partnership idea with a quite progressive, forward-thinking customer service proposition from a technology standpoint, mm-hmm. um, and then also the customer service that you get. You know the sort of um, the way the uh, the salespeople on the shop floor uh, really interact with their customers and. Yeah, I was greeted eight times throughout my entire walk because I I walked through the whole store before we met up with each other. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's great. Yeah, there's, you know, there's lots of people around. They're all very friendly. They're sort of there to help. Um, And I think there's a lot of emphasis on, and I guess I've sort of said this, but service in the way the customer wants. So, you know, if you want to walk through and just do your own thing and, you know, people just say hello to you and leave you alone, then there's that. Yeah. Yeah. you know, if you want to buy stuff off your phone, pick it up and send it to the store, or pick it up from the store and then leave, there's that. Or also, if you want to spend three hours with a um, a personal stylist, then you can have like the full-on um, service level that that right. brings. So you couple those things um, with perhaps um, a forward-thinking team um, that can help bring stories to life, like mm. what? we're doing with new concepts um and i think that's why you know people like dior were interested in working with us because we can introduce them to maybe a new customer base mm-hmm. um but also bring ideas to life i.e we can have eight foot light up bumblebees <laughs> yeah. on the shop floor uh that our team um essentially built um and installed yeah that's that's pretty incredible so now as you've you've sort of elevated to more of like VP of men's fashion. What what is what are the the other things that you know? Obviously, you're doing a, a ton of stuff, but like, what are the the next steps that that you see for yourself that you're that you guys are trying to do at Nordstrom? I mean, obviously, what you said is a lot, so <laughs> I'm not discounting that. Um, for me, everything like links back to um, sort of a broader brand marketing idea of how people view the Nordstrom business. And I guess mm-hmm. you've touched on that a little bit in terms of maybe the Dior concept was kind of unexpected for some people mm-hmm. um, at Nordstrom, at least in the men's sphere. Um, so there's that. And then also um, our existing customer base is asking for sort of more interesting, newer product ideas. And then you know, we also want to engage a younger customer base because actually of the big department stores, we have the youngest customer base. Mm. Um, so we're speaking to a younger guy, but I'm really interested in how you cultivate more and more of that. Um, so for me, everything stems from product. You know, how can we um, evolve our brand assortment to have really more interesting product ideas on the floor? And that's so that we can talk about that more so there's more interesting stories to tell um or also we can engage with either a new customer base or just in a different way with our current customer base mm. um, so they're the sort of like the big three ideas and by all means you know the um the team of merchants that lead the nordstrom team are you know by all means sort of world class um and it's not necessarily about reinventing the men's business at Nordstrom, it's more about evolving it and sort of adding some stuff on top. Right. Um, are you kind of on the lookout for the next Sam here? Like, uh, have, have you come across any sort of very excited 
uh, driven guys that or or women that that you want to like take under your wing? Yes, uh, yeah. namely because you can never do this stuff alone. Like yeah. to talk about that, Mister Porter piece. You know, I guess what I learned most there is the importance of all the different facets of the business and the importance of the team in all those different facets of the building of, of the business. Right. Um, so I think you know one of the most important things is having a team of people that you can really trust in and share the same level of passion um and like super fortunate to have landed in a position whereby um a lot of that's already here mm-hmm. um and then we've been sort of building as we go as well um you know we're sort of adding roles every now and then as it as it makes sense um but you know it's never for me it's like never about a single specific person um right. you know it's really about the collective idea of I always have this thing where you should be able to rip apart any good idea and put it back together and it should be stronger than it was in the first place. So, because if you don't do that, then someone else definitely will for you (laughs) on your behalf when you put it out into the world. And the only way of doing that is having a team of people that can all sort of question and challenge things in a very open and honest way. Um, And again, across, you know, that's not just specific to buying. It has to happen across buying and marketing and press and, you know um and the creative teams and art direction and you know you might come up with a really great idea but how's it going to shoot and what's it going to look like online how's it going to come to life in store you know the sort of the omni play both in terms of the store network but also just in the the creative and commercial balance right yeah i mean the reason why i said that earlier is is you know is because at least from my experience within fashion and the industry you know i have been in and around it for some time now everything good that's ever happened to me is been because of the relationships I've been able to make. And so I've always tried to be very conscious of looking out for other ones or even, you know, like I have random people that will email me all the time about like, hey, I'm thinking about changing my degree to this or I'm thinking about doing this. And I've, you know, respond to them or will, you know, write them whatever because um, like someone did that to me. And, And I think you know, not that you and I are the same person, but I think the fact that you um, you kind of worked your way up and earned that, it, it I think it makes you much more receptive and aware to other people like you. And what I, those people from my interaction and, and myself included, I think are always going to be the strongest people in the team and the, the hardest workers because just you can't teach passion. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, and I think... I mean, to your point, really, by all means, that's kind of how I got my chance yeah. in it. So um, I definitely feel the sense of, um, um, I definitely feel the weight of, of that opportunity that I was given and in order to like engage with kind of anyone that I come across mm-hmm. um, going forward. Um, you know, I think passion is the thing that you can't teach. Yeah. Um, and there becomes, you know, the buying thing it's great fun but it's hard um and you know there's certain periods where the hours are tough and you know that's true of buying and it's true of every other part of the business as well right um that when there's a lot of projects on and the deadlines are tight the thing that gets you through is a kind of a deep sense of just love of what you do um and that's not something that you can fake um you kind of <laughs> you, you you have to really be into it um right. So I guess we're always on the lookout for super impassioned um, people that want to 
crack on and um, get stuff done. Um, and to your point, I definitely, you know, I I get lots of emails about lots of different things, sure. um, as I'm sure you can um, appreciate. Um, but yeah, I try and like you know reply to as much as as I possibly can. Um, both because you know, some people kind of did that for me when I was young and and, and took a chance, um, and also because you don't want to miss out. <laughs> right like you know there's the kind of the upside i mean it's like i'll go and see almost any brand ever just because you kind of want to meet and engage with someone and see hey where's it you can oftentimes get an understanding of where a brand or a business might go from its very sort of its, its early stages of infancy through to you know the forward outlook um based on like the person that you meet Mm-hmm. A lot of it's down to you know an individual and getting a vibe from that individual and working out kind of where is that going to go. Um, I sat on the the BFC's um, new gen selection panel for like six years, I guess. Wow. Um, I technically actually am still on Lulu Kennedy's um, Fashion East panel, although I do it from afar and we do it over email. Um, That's awesome. Um, but like that, what like I love that stuff because it really you engage with people in a completely different way. And also I feel like, you know, as you go kind of go through the industry, you meet sort of seasoned professionals right, all right. the time who have a very specific way of talking and a very specific viewpoint. Um, and when you meet like young designers who haven't been taught any of that stuff, they look at things in quite a pure way or they ask questions in quite a pure way or, you know, some of them in quite a naive way. And I find that quite um, inspiring to talk to in a sort of, I guess that might sound a little bit odd, but, no, no, um, I understand. you know, I, I kind of like the, the, they haven't been, um, haven't been tainted. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. They have, um, or jaded by the, yeah, jaded the, is the word I was by the for, awfulness of, of what the world can be sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I remember like the first time I've met Craig Green, um, and really kind of like back then he talked a lot about, he was really into art, um, and kind of wanted the whole expression to be an artistic one. And then he was just sort of making clothes that he kind of wanted to wear. And then, you know, watching how that's, grown and developed and yeah. where he's gone to Those fencing jackets idea. are everywhere yeah exactly yeah. um you know and there's a number of different sort of examples in 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 that regard but um i find that super interesting um and quite compelling um yeah that's awesome well sam this was a huge pleasure thanks so much for your time is there anything you want to add or mention before we wrap uh, well, I'd love for people to come in and see uh, the new concept space, uh, especially if you're uh, anywhere around the New York or Seattle area. Um, there's uh, Dior will be in till eight, uh, middle of April. Nice. Um, and there's also a, a digital experience. Um, and, uh, you know, with these uh, projects are going to evolve and change and, and launch every couple of months. There's no fixed cadence. Um, but uh, please be on the lookout for our, our new work at Nordstrom. Dope. Thanks so much. It was good chatting. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast or send an email to us at info at blamopod.com. Still want to connect? You can join our Slack group and chat with other friends of the pod. Just email us and say, hey, I want to join the Slack and we'll get you right in. Thanks again. We'll see you soon.